All right, we're back in the garage. Welcome back to the Garage Talk podcast. This is episode 19, Steve Swanson, Swanson Group. Known him for a long time, probably since, I don't know, right about after I came out of the womb and uh, grew up in Glendale like I did. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for coming over. Happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to this because uh, we've known each other for a long time, but I don't think we've really had a chance to just sit down, the two of us, and just talk for a while uh, about, well, anything and everything. You actually were the uh, the radio host for my wedding. Yeah, that's right. You flew me down to San Diego, and I'll never forget that time. And matter of fact, <clears throat> you know what I really won't forget is the time before we went down. Well, there was a couple of times, actually, that I'll, I'll never forget. And one is I believe it was the trip we went down for the, um, what was the dinner? It was like the, the, the uh, engagement party or something we went down for, and we decided to, we thought it'd be a good idea to smoke cigars. Right. And uh, your son Chris and I about yacked in the trash can because we decided to inhale those cigars. We I went in and bought him a cigar first, and then we didn't we didn't have any matches. Finally, had to beg a match, and then you know it was about a fifteen dollar cigar, which was a lot of money for you know two thousand. <clears throat> and then the, you wanted to take one puff and throw it away, but no, no, I had to force you to take it enough to make you half sick. Yeah, we did too. I don't know how many times I puffed on that thing, and it wasn't the first cigar I ever smoked. I don't know what it was about that expensive cigar, but man, I couldn't hang it. I think. Was that the same trip that we ran into the Kansas State fans? I think it was, wasn't it? Right. We ended up at Moose McGillicuddy's. Okay. And they were the they were the base for the for for Kansas. And they they wore purple uniforms. And do you remember the bus that they were on? Yeah, they had a bus and the bus had a deck on the back of it. And this was like a nineteen seventies probably school bus right. ish. And it was all painted. It had AstroTurf from the previous stadium at Kansas State, and they'd ripped that AstroTurf out. And we, your son and I, got invited on the deck, and we may have snuck a cold one or two at you know twenty years old. And by the time you guys came back out, we were having a good old time. It was a it was a unique experience. That was the Holiday Bowl. It was played the next day. You guys had to fly home. Yep. But we actually saw that bus driving down the highway the next day, and then <clears throat> Deborah and I walked up to it in the stadium parking lot and got on board there. Isn't that great? It was great. We also had another good holiday bowl experience where, uh, well, you almost got in a fist fight. I almost got punched for holding up the, uh, Texas Longhorn sign upside down after we whooped up on, uh, Chris Sims in Texas. That's it. I remember that. <laughs> That's some good I times. I had to come to your rescue. And, yeah. And Chris grabs me and says, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. I remember Deborah saying, get in the car, get in the car. And the funny part about these two stories is I wasn't even going to bring them up. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was thinking about all this other serious stuff and interesting stuff we could talk about, <clears> but definitely some good times. And, uh, and that was cool. I appreciate you bringing me down for that experience when you got married. And what, what year was that? Was 2000, that? 2000. Okay. Yeah. 2000. Wow. Yeah. Time just flies by, doesn't it? It certainly does. All right. Well, let's go back to the beginning for you. Swanson Group wasn't always called Swanson Group, uh, family business, but uh, talk a little bit about how the family business actually started way back when. Well, <clears throat> um, first of all, my, my grandfather and his brother would be uh, my great uncle. They f- started the business in no tie organ called Swanson Brothers <clears throat> in 1939. Uh, they had both been uh, employees of the Southern Pacific Railroad. They, they were lumber buyers, lumber inspectors, and they decided to step out in what was still you know, de- Depression-era times and start a sawmill. And they were successful, uh, a small operation. And, uh, you know, World War II came along, which people don't really realize. I mean, the post-World War II era was when the lumber business in Oregon really started because all the returning veterans and home building nationwide was a big boost. 
So my dad and his brothers <clears throat> came home from World War II. Their eldest brother, uh, Ray, who was 12 years older, um, was already firmly in control of the family business, and it really wasn't big enough to absorb all those people. So my dad and, and my Uncle Rod had done many things in the three or four years after the, after the war ended. You know, they'd built some homes. They, my dad worked for Eugene Sand and Gravel, and Rod was a chemical engineer, went, finished college and was a chemical engineer and worked for <clears throat> one of the big paper companies in California. But they just decided they didn't want to be somebody else's employees. And with a little help from their father, they came to Glendale, Oregon in 1951, and they bought the mill there. And I can't remember what it was called. I think it was called uh, uh, something Fur Lumber Company. And it was, it was shut down. It wasn't running. And even in the years that it ran, it was a March to October mill. So there was no pavement. Uh, roads were horrible, hard to get logs in the, in the, no infrastructure, hard to get logs in the wintertime. So most mills would start up <clears throat> as soon as the ground cleared a little bit in March and they'd run through October. And then when the, when the rains hit, they were done. So these guys, Rod and Dean and uh, a couple other guys bought the mill and literally they put almost nothing down when you think about it. And I went back and I've looked at the original uh, incorporation. They put down $16,000 a piece. And I'm pretty sure 15,000 of it was borrowed from somebody. Do and you happen to know who it was borrowed from or their dad. friends? Okay, gotcha. Their dad. Um, they actually had one of their partners uh, had been a first national bank employee, had been the kind of the banker guy for, for my grandfather. So he was one of the partners and probably helped them gather up some financing. So it's a, it was a really small operation. Um, my parents lived in the upstairs of a two-story house that was actually a duplex. Um, Jerry Gregory and Betty Gregory, which who you might remember, they lived down below, and they were paying like, you know, $12 a month rent, something, something absurd like that. But they were only drawing $50 a month out of the company. Uh, and it was a partnership, and in the end, you always split the earnings, but there wasn't much. So it was a tough, tough start. My mom was 20. Uh, my dad was 26. She was pretty sure she'd been sentenced to life in prison in, in a rural community. Did she grow up in Eugene or somewhere else? She was born in Wyoming, uh, but spent most of her uh, childhood in Eugene. Uh, and Eugene wasn't that big, but as we all know, it was a whole lot bigger than by probably a thousand times than, mm -hmm. than, uh, than Glendale. But, you know, they, they moved there and, and uh, started that business and turned it into a successful a one sawmill business and just chugged along for, for many, many years. Um, I came on board. Well, I, you know, I started working there when I was a teenager uh, and then um, went off to college, uh, came back. <clears throat> My father called me up when, uh, after the, the accountant at the mill had passed away and said, Hey, can you come down and help us get through, you know, a while till we get somebody hired because uh, I was an accounting major and I said, sure. So I came down initially uh, a little bit over Thanksgiving and then again at, at Christmas break. Uh, and then about first part of January, he said, Hey, he says, you're studying uh, to do what I need you to do now. So come to work. So I guarantee you, I'll figure out a way to get you back to college where you can get your degree and, and away you go. Well, I was a little disenchanted with college at the time. And this is at the University of Oregon. U of O. And in the 70s. In the 70s. And I was a little disenchanted. I'd been there a while and, 
and felt a little obligation to go down and I had all these promises. Uh, the one thing I had failed to do was negotiate my salary. And there's a story behind that. <clears throat> so anyway, I, I, I go down there and you know, I'm into it for a couple of weeks before I find out I'm getting paid 900 bucks a month. And I'm going, whoa, uh, even in 1977, that wasn't very much money. What did you think you were gonna get paid? Just ballpark? I don't know, I was probably thinking at least 1500, which I finally got to after about five years. <clears throat> so shortly after I get there, uh, within the first year or so, I, I got married and, and uh, my wife had a child, so I, I've got a ready-made family and, and I'm, I'm making uh, 900 bucks and uh, bought a piece of ground. Uh, payment was 125 and I was paying $175 a month rent. It was desperate times for us. Uh, so we, we persevered, we got through, and, and I you know, obviously became successful in the business. I was an accountant, got the job done, stayed, stayed in that role for about 12 years. And then uh, the gentleman that they, that they had hired to be the general manager, his name was Cliff Lansden, um, he retired. And so in 89, um, I took over as general manager. And I was pretty thrilled. It was, you know, we'd kind of built the company up. Uh, the first year I came to work there, we made 34 million feet of lumber. Uh, by 89, we made 100 million feet of lumber. That's incredible. It was a, it was a nice growth, um, but we had a long, long ways to go. Um, as you know, we ultimately had to shut that mill down uh, simply because we couldn't get logs. And it was now, it was by the time we shut that thing down, just uh, <clears throat> March of last year, uh, it was producing 250 million feet a year. Did you ever think you would see it produce that much wood? You know, it's, it was an evolutionary process. So as equipment and processes came along to make you more and more efficient, to get more and more volume out of every log, to utilize every single piece of that wood, you just, you just had to do that to keep up. You know, we're in a region where logs are artificially constrained. You know, I mean, we, could, we can talk forever about the fact that, you know, the vast majority of forested acres in Oregon are owned by the federal government, either Bureau of Land Management uh, or U.S. Forest Service, and then a significant amount owned by the state of Oregon and even some of the counties. And the harvest levels off of those lands are abysmal. Um, in Oregon, 8%, so 60, I think it's 63% of the land base is federally owned, 8% of the volume that mills process come off those federal lands. The rest of the 92% have to come from private sources. So we have very high-priced logs compared to the rest of the United States, uh, Canada, and other countries uh, like Europe and Russia that, that all can and do sell into our marketplace. So whether it's, uh, whether it's lumber or whether it's plywood, we have to compete with regions around the world. And as, <clears throat> as our government succumbs to the pressure of, in my mind, radical environment, environmentalists, we watch our forests burn up around us every year. I mean, we're burning up eight or ten times the volume that we log every year uh, and not even salvaging the dead stuff. And other countries are, are paying a fraction of what we pay for, for logs. And they're able to ship plywood from Brazil. They're able to ship lumber from the Nordic countries. Certainly they ship a lot of lumber in from thousands of miles away uh, into the U.S., uh, when we don't produce it ourselves because we have policies that don't allow it. Did you think we would ever get to this point that it would be restricted this much? You know, this started back uh, with the Endangered Species Act, which was actually 
signed into law by a Republican president, which and was a well-meaning act. I mean, it was a, initially it was it was the the rallying call was the American bald eagle. Who doesn't want to save the bald eagle? But over time, it became a tool where the environmental community was able to use that as a tool to stop everything. And, and not just Endangered Species Act, but the national, there's all kinds of other ones, the National Environmental Policy Act and all kinds of planning regulations that they use to, uh, to, to sue, to delay, uh, to stop any kind of harvest. And even on um, where there's been significant wildfires with billions of feet of timber that could run the industry in Oregon almost on the salvage, the, the agencies can't put it up for sale until they go through a long, uh, either an EIS, an environmental impact statement, or an EA, uh, different agency in environmental analysis. And that takes 18 months to two years. They get that all done, uh, being with roadblocks all along the way by the environmentalists. And then they, they finally put a sale up and they get sued over it. And then they go through a, a long legal process and usually they win. In the end, the, the courts say, yep, BLM or Forest Service, you did all the things right. You, you've, uh, you've obeyed all the laws. Go ahead and sell the sale. Well, now it's three, four years into it, and they put the sale up in some cases, and nobody wants to bid on it because we can't make lumber out of rotten wood. So then the environmentalists say, well, see, they didn't even want that in the first place. And it's all uh, a conspiracy. It's a process <clears throat> to put us out of business. And not every environmentalist is that way, and I, I really shouldn't characterize them all. In fact, a lot of folks uh, today are starting to really realize that, wow, this is a failed policy. Um, we can talk about climate change and all those things, but there, if you look at the timeline, since the spotted owl was listed in Oregon and timber uh, harvest plummeted by 90, I think by 92%, harvest plummeted it took a few years to get there because they didn't take away existing sales but the correlation between wildfires and the intensity of wildfires matches perfectly a timeline of, of no harvest and actual neglect on federal lands and it's not talked about in in the media hardly at all not i not don't much. think no i mean i think everybody just says well you know we're saving the species and it's a good thing and and the environmental groups um, they use the court system as a way to finance themselves. I mean, if you don't think that they're big business, you're absolutely wrong. They use the uh, Equal Access to Justice Act, where a well, once again, a well-meaning act, so that if, for example, uh, Jason, somebody was trying to, to, you know, take put you out of your house to put a new road in here or something of that nature, and you can't afford to sue the federal government or the state government yourself. So this, this is a law that says if you prevail, you get paid back all of your legal fees. Well, the environmentalists use it to sue the federal government, and they'll sue over 15 things on a given timber sale, and they'll prevail on one of the smallest of all, and they get all of their legal fees back. And their legal fees, these people, uh, some in large part, are, are working for almost for free, but when they, when they submit their bills, it's 700 bucks an hour. And so some of these places, even these local ones, KS Wild and others, they are raking in millions of dollars in legal fees, and that's how they support their organizations. And the people within those organizations are drawing down big buck salaries. That's incredible. I, I never even thought about that. It's I mean, an, it's no an industry. 
It's absolutely an industry. And is it safe to say, though, because I'm sure there's been some good that's come out of some of the things they've done as far as better procedures to protect certain lands and rivers and do better reforestation. I know over the years that's been a big thing as far as making sure that, you know, like the clear cuts, for example, and doing thinning projects and all of that. So, I mean, would you say that there's been some good things come out of it? Sure. Um, I don't think anybody in the industry has any dreams of returning to the heydays of the 60s and 70s. But to your point on reforestation, that's been the law of the land since 1974 when the Oregon Forest Practices Act was first enacted. And no, <clears throat> nobody um, that's in, in the business, whether they're a mill owner with timberlands or just a timberland owner, nobody, one, they can't get away with it legally, but why wouldn't they replant their acres? That's an investment. Mm -hmm. um, when you're a, when you're when you own timberland, I know your parents have some, uh, your grandparents, and they do some harvesting. And when they get done harvesting, they replant the trees. And forty years later, or thirty five years later, somebody else gets to go in there and harvest them again. So yes, uh, there is a fallacy that we don't replant, uh, but the limit there's a significant limit on the size of clear cuts, 120 acres which is not as, sounds like a lot of acres, but it's a pretty small footprint. And then you can't have two contiguous areas of 120, has to be a green up strip. So there's a lot of things that uh, limit the, the, uh, the harvest, but also protect the environment. And I think when you, when you really think about it, timberland owners are bigger environmentalists than the ones that are out there stopping any activity. These lands need to be managed. Mm -hmm. um, left to mother nature, especially with, with, uh, what appears to be some, you know, some, uh, some warming, uh, these wildfires are, are vicious and, and taking over. We saw just, I think it was 2013 where we had the Douglas complex. It came within five miles of our plywood mill in Glendale and Glendale was in danger of being wiped off the map. Even, uh, last year's milepost 97 fire. That was, I think it was coming in a hurry too. If they hadn't got that stopped on Canyon mountain and it was touch and go, it came down Windy Creek and there'd been no stopping it. It would yeah. just, it would have swept through. And, and frankly, something like that nature could have gone all the way to the coast. And it almost has before looking back to the biscuit fire. And then there was the, the Chetco bar fire that was the opposite. It came from the coast and came over this way. And we were even looking around here. We, we've had to do it a couple times, especially since we moved here. I mean, we, we sat here and watched the fire up on the ridge here where they had the two fires that merged, and I can't think of their names right off the top of my head, but there was the one out towards Cave Junction and then the one that was uh, Taylor Creek, mm -hmm. you know, just right up on the ridge here. And uh, even for a while there, we were looking at each other going, you know, if that thing decides to take off, it could be here in a heartbeat. And, uh, you know, then in Redding, my sister-in-law had the big fire there that ripped through all those homes right up on the ridge above her house. And uh, her husband was, was falling trees and doing everything he could to, to keep their place safe. And it just happens time and time again. And, and I mean, do you see any solution in sight? Well, I'll get to that in a quick second here. But when you talk about the biscuit fire and <clears throat> some of those things, uh, 1987 was the first really big fire. It was the Silver Fire. And it started in a remote section of the Calmeopsis Wilderness Area. And you can't use mechanized equipment in a wilderness area. So the, the government processes watch it burn. And then it, and it, they'll sometimes burn for weeks, and they're fairly small. And then another event happens. You get you know, high winds, and the thing blows up. So the, the, the Silver Fire was in the Calmeopsis Wilderness Area. 
the biscuit fire which burned 500,000 acres started in the same area that the silver fire started in because there was no cleanup afterwards nothing but snags and brush and the uh Chuckle bar fire exact same place they all started right in the calvary office wilderness area that the latest fire the Chuckle bar fire burned for about three weeks they sent a crew of 12 in there to monitor it and they just sat there and watched it as it grew from one snag to three acres to five acres to 12 acres and then it caught fire and it burned a hundred thousand acres and and there's nothing being done there's no salvage there's no cleanup afterwards if you don't go in if they don't go in and take out the merchantable trees and create revenue for the government they don't the government doesn't have the money to go in there and replant it so they just sit there and it just turns i mean it's instead of having a healthy forest in 40 years you have one in a couple hundred years and it's not going to be the same in some cases these fires are so hot they're not going to grow trees naturally for 300 years and it's just some insane activities that a lot of folks just don't seem to get when the fires are raging when people can't breathe then it's a hot button item and then as soon as it's winter comes along then nobody seems to care it does seem like people are starting to pay a little bit more attention since we've had some of these fires that have been catastrophic in communities and also killed the tourism industry at least for a couple of years there i mean you had paradise get you know burned to the ground yep. you had uh, what a thousand homes ish in redding get burned to the ground and you know after the smoke chokes people out for summers on end and the tourism industry is in the tank people start to pay attention when it finally starts to hit them in the wallet a little bit and and maybe i mean do you see anything happening behind the scenes they seem to miss the causal relationship between lack of management and the fire itself you know they they want to blame the lack of economic activity on yes it's the fire but it's not because we didn't log them so it's it's insane what our elected officials do in response i mean we have one of the most powerful senators in out there he's on you know senator wyden he's on the uh, energy and natural resource committee chairman oh excuse me he's not chairman he's ranking member now because the republicans are in control and not the democrats but he has immense power and he could get things done in oregon in particular on blm because blm timberlands are only in oregon so you're never going to get national legislation passed when the two senators in the state that the activity would take place in aren't supportive. So Senator Wyden's answer to the fires two years ago when Ashland and Jacksonville and all these places were just dying on the vine, you know, there was no fishing, uh, there was no, I mean, how many episodes or what do you call it, how many uh, episodes, I guess, of Shakespeare were canceled and Brit Festival canceled, all these things canceled. He introduced legislation um, almost as a joke. Uh, he. He knew absolutely it would never pass, but he introduces legislation that would allow the federal government to pay for motel rooms for those impacted by the smoke. Instead of dealing with the problem that causes the right. smoke. I felt like writing a letter and say, hey, I'm all for this. I want to go to Maui. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it was never going to pass, but, but he's satisfying a different constituency. Um, and it's until we see change there and it'll take enough economic pressure I mean, enough people have to suffer in Oregon where finally somebody raises their hand and says, hey, is this the right guy uh, that will ever see change uh, on federal land? Now, having said that, um, as an industry, about five years ago, we just said enough is enough. Um, and we thought we'll take the same route the environmentalists have used and we'll sue over these plans 
you know, because the, the agencies are required to put, to put together five and 10 year plans and they just continually ratchet down the harvest levels where the, the BLM lands in particular, they grow 1.2 billion board feet every year. They harvested 240 million last year and probably burned up well over a billion feet. We, we sued and said, wait, the ONC Act, which is from 1937, is it, is it the law of the land or isn't it? And we sued, and it took almost four years, but we, we, we actually won that. <clears throat> and now we're in, of course, the appeal stage, but um, we sued in the Tenth Circuit Court. Uh, Judge Leon, this is Washington, D.C., ruled in our favor not once but twice. And I think we, we may actually have a chance now to say, yeah, the ONC Act is the law of the land. And in the ONC Act itself, it says not you should, it says you shall harvest a minimum of 500 million board feet. Now, bear in mind that that acreage over, over uh, 2 million acres is still growing 1.2 billion. Why can't we harvest 500 million? We, we either harvest it, which creates jobs, which sequesters carbon, or we let it burn up. Uh, it, it just, to me, it, it's, it's such an easy black and white decision, but we've got to get our politicians on board. How hard is that going to be to do? And what is that process like? Because I know you guys had our current governor in for a tour not too long ago. We did. Um, it wasn't really about uh, timber. It was about the, uh, the cap and trade legislation that she was pushing, trying to push through that failed because finally uh, people had enough. And a, a group of loggers and truckers started with nothing and in three weeks had 50,000 followers, and they literally stormed the Capitol and with thousands of log trucks and more, more thousands and thousands of people, and they shut down, the, shut down Salem, and they got everybody's attention, and then they finally had, even though the, even though the governor is a Democrat, um, you know, there's three, three leaders in state government, two, two out of three are Democrats. Uh, the Oregon Senate and the Oregon House are, have a supermajority of Democrats, they can have whatever they want, but they stopped cap and trade legislation because people said, wait a minute, what's really going on here? I mean, you got, you got all these people, 50,000 people from rural Oregon saying enough is enough. And they literally got it stopped. Now that doesn't mean it's not going to come back. Uh, you know, governor Brown decided to come out on what she called a listening tour. And she actually came to two of our facilities, uh, to see what we do. Uh, she came both to Roseburg and to Springfield and, and she listened. And now we'll see there's the upcoming short session. It's a month long session of the Oregon legislature. And we'll see what they, what they come forth, come forward with next. Cause what they had last time was, was devastating for rural Oregon. Um, you know, it was a, it was going to really raise the price of gas and diesel. And that's what runs rural Oregon. You can't get from Glendale to Grants Pass without having a car. It's not like you're going to get on, you know, the rapid transit, um, if you're a farmer, you got to have diesel. If you're a log trucker, you got to have diesel. Uh, and it was going to really raise the price of diesel and, and raise the cost of energy everywhere because Oregon was trying to be a leader, a world leader in uh, carbon emissions. And yet you, you can't change the climate of the world from Oregon. But what you can do is destroy Oregon's economy uh, in the process and not really gain anything. Anyway, uh, uh, I go on and on. There, there are ways, and we are working on ways to push back through the legal system to try to get uh, a foothold and get some responsible management 
the federal lands back on the table. It's just it's critical for for uh, survival in this business. Uh, you know, I had to shut down that that very sawmill that my father and his brothers started in 1951, not because it was a bad operation. That mill would have been a, an absolute stellar operation anywhere else besides Southwest Oregon. And that's just because you can't get logs. And in particular in Southwest Oregon, the farther north you go, whether it's in Oregon or even into Washington state, the growing conditions for the lands is better. So they do grow more trees uh, because there's more moisture. And the federal lands in Southwest Oregon were the last ones to be harvested um, in the 50s and 60s. And, and many, many of them did not get harvested. So there, this the, it's what they refer to as the remaining old growth. And there's there's very little private ownership down here uh, as a percentage. And there's very little uh, of the federal lands that are second growth and third growth. So it's just tougher and tougher the farther south in Oregon you go. I looked at the Glendale Mill. I had put my heart and soul into that thing uh, and just came to the conclusion I was beating my head against the wall. And, and looking to have to sacrifice other operations and made the very, very hard decision to shut down a mill my father had started. It's the kind of things you, in business you have to do. Uh, I, you know, if he was alive, he would have supported the decision. He always said, never fall in love with an asset. you got a business to run. You, you have to make decisions that are hard on uh, some people, but you've got to look at it for the whole. You can't say, I don't want to shut down the Glendale sawmill because it's going to impact 125 people and then go on for six or eight months and have to lay off 500. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to make these kind of hard decisions in any business. Uh, but Forest Products in Oregon, is a, it's a tough business. And how many locations do you have now? How many different mills? We have three. Uh, we've had, we've had uh, six at one time. Uh, in our, in our heyday in 2007, we had 1,270 employees. <clears throat> Today, we still have 750, uh, but they're spread over three operations. We, in Glendale, we still have <clears throat> the plywood mill there. It's about 250 people. Roseburg, we have our stud mill, about 150 people. And in Springfield, we have the, the most state-of-the-art plywood mill in North America. And I, I don't say that lightly, and I'm not bragging. It just is. Uh, and the reason it is is that we had a, f a fire in 2014 that burned it to the ground. Uh, we had bought the mill in 07. We had retooled it. It really turned it around through a really tough economic times. And we managed to scrape together the money to get that thing up to where it was really a, a, a well-producing, very profitable operation. And then July of 2014, something happened, a spark somewhere inside the mill. And <clears throat> It was a wooden building, and it caught fire, and it was on the ground in 30 minutes. Uh, thankfully, nobody was hurt. I mean, a few scorched ears and, and hair and eyebrows, but everybody got out alive. And we had to make a hard decision of what we were going to do, uh, and we decided to rebuild it. And it is, in fact, an absolute state-of-the-art uh, veneer and plywood operation. It's, it is uh, the flagship now for Swanson Group. So when it burned down, did you think it could be the flagship? Well, it was, it was, at the time, it was becoming the flagship just because we were branching out into more specialized plywood products that weren't so dependent on, on housing. Uh, Post-fire, once we made a decision to proceed, uh, we had actually gone out and bought a company called Olympic Panel Products that produced 100% paper overlay 
panels. So we make about 90% of what we make in Springfield now has a paper overlay. It's either a high density or a medium density uh, overlay. And it has phenolic resins embedded in the paper. And you make it either in a one-step or a two-step. And if you're not a plywood person, this may not make sense. But you either put the, put the, uh, the paper on basically raw wood and put it into the press and make it all at one time. It's the cheapest way to make it, but it's the uh, a lower quality. Uh, the super high quality panel, you actually make a plywood panel. Uh, you send it through all the repair stations. You sand it, fully repair the face, and then you put the paper on in a second pressing application. So you got a lot more money invested in it, but it's a higher quality panel. And so what we, are they using those panels for? So there's three main uses. Um, the MDOs, uh, which is the vast majority of the quantity, is used for concrete form. So for decades, concrete form was uh, what they call BBOES. The B and the B stood for a B face and a B back. That's a grade of veneer. And OES is oil and end, OES, oil and end surface or whatever. Mm. <laughs> I'm having trouble remembering exactly what it stands for. But essentially, you seal the panel up so that you can pour pour concrete against it and reuse it with a with a bboes you might get five or six pours against that panel and then it it's it's worthless it's it can't be used anymore when you use a paper overlay even the lowest quality paper overlay that we make <clears throat> you'll get 20 pours and under the the highest quality that we make uh, which is called barrier film you might get 120 pours so it's an expensive panel to buy but it's a panel that uh, is cheaper per pour. Now, that's never going to work in a residential market where they're building custom homes and they're cutting up the plywood to make form, and then they're going to throw it away because it's not going to be the same for the next job. What the barrier film and the really high-end products we make, they're for, for high-rise type construction where they have big forming systems where they literally start, in some cases, three stories below ground, building an underground garage, and each floor gets poured they pour the floor itself they go up and pour another wall and so forth and you, you think about it if you're building uh, a hundred story building in downtown new york if you had to take the plywood that you're using to for your forming at, at the seventh floor and throw it all away you got to get rid of that get it out of the city and you got to bring new stuff in our product they can, can simply use it over and over and over again so it's it's a niche market it's not a deep market but it's one that we we play in um, all the way from the very low end to the high end on the concrete form side. Are they using some of those panels on the stadiums they're building now? Do you know? Like they, the, the new stadium in Las Vegas for the Raiders, for example? Because I know they're doing a lot of concrete. They are. Um, uh, we actually sell directly to some of these uh, contractors, and, and there's a lot of our product that goes into major major installations like that. So in addition to the concrete form, which is by volume is the largest part we make in Springfield, we make two other products. <clears throat> One is simply sign ready. It's a four by eight sheet of plywood with uh, probably both sides with a paper overlay, a super, super smooth and, and dense surface. And it's for signs, whether they're highway signs or the local restaurant sign or, or any number of signs uh, that it's a, it's a product line that uh, is pretty vibrant. The third one, which is probably the smallest by volume, but the, the most profitable for us is literally it's roll-up truck doors. So when you look at a, a U-Haul, for example, um, 
UPS, FedEx, those doors in large part are made out of wood, the back door, the roll-up door. And they do that because, I mean, the rest of the cargo box is fiberglass and aluminum, but the door itself is made out of wood because it's much more stable uh, in the environment. You can imagine you take off in the morning, it's 55 degrees, uh, your door might work just fine. You get to Medford and it's 110, and that door has moved if it's, if it's metal or, or fiberglass, and it's not going to perform as well. Uh, so by and large, those doors are made from wood, and we make, we make that. We're the largest uh, producer of overhead or of, uh, of roll-up door panels uh, in the nation. Is that something you would have ever imagined way back when, when you saw the two-by-fours flying off the chain, <clears throat> that you'd be in the, the roll-up door business or maybe the sign business even? No, not even close. When I, was, uh, when I first took over it in 1989, I, I, I couldn't envision anything but making two-by-four and two-by-six. And it wasn't until we, we stepped up when the, the mill across town was for sale in 1992 and we made our first expansion move by buying what was then Gregory Forest Products uh, that I ever thought we'd make plywood. Uh, you know, plywood was the enemy when you're a dimension mill. But uh, here it was, the, that mill was going out of business. Uh, we saw an opportunity for us to, to really step out. <clears throat> and we took, we took a huge chance uh, in 92 and, and bought that operation uh, and about 35,000 acres of their timberlands. And then the spot of that was listed in 93, timberland values went up and we were heroes. Um, um, a lot of good things along the way. This, that was one of my first uh, really growth moves and it turned out successful. And, and we, we bought a, the stud mill in Roseburg in, in 2000. We bought another stud mill in 2005. Uh, we merged with our sister company that uh, my parents were part owners in uh, in 2001 as well. That was a mill in Notai, Oregon. Not my grandfather's mill, but one that, uh, a different mill. So we had really grown. And then we bought the mill in, uh, in Springfield. And our, our, our business model was buy these older mills that people have given up. We had, we had capital. We would deploy our capital and our management style and buy new equipment and refurbish equipment, uh, get the workforce trained uh, both in safety and, and productivity and, and work our magic and make these things successful. And we'd gotten pretty good at it. Uh, 2007, we bought, the, we bought the plywood mill in Eugene, Springfield, actually, and I, I told my, my group of guys, I said, we'll be fine with this as long as the wheels don't fall off the whole damn economy. Because the economy wasn't, for forest products, wasn't really good in late six and seven was already starting to peel off the the national economy was still pretty good it was 2008 when the wheels fell off and we had um, a, just a catastrophic event nationwide where nobody could afford to stay in their homes we had, had lending policies uh that were just crazy they called them ninja loans no income no job or assets you can still buy a house so you had people that just simply couldn't afford them they were buying one, two, and sometimes three homes thinking they're always going to go up in value and they're making money. And as long as the value stayed up, they still had equity, they were fine. Well, we overbuilt as a nation and the housing crisis hit and we went all the way down to less than 500,000 starts. And that's, that's starts of new homes in a year. Where in 2006, it was like 2.3 million starts. So that's crazy that everything dried up, uh, we couldn't hardly move a, a stick of lumber, and we were selling them. Uh, 
we were selling two by fours at $135 per thousand board feet. That was less than it was in 1950. And our log costs and our labor costs and our energy costs had all gone up. And we couldn't get, we couldn't get out from underneath it fast enough. What was going through your head at that time? Well, in the first year or so, you're thinking, well, this can't last. You know, it, it'll change. Well, it didn't change. It got worse and it got worse and it got worse. And as a company, we had uh, really stretched our wings and we had we'd gone out and, and took risk and we leveraged our previous successes in trying to grow a bigger business. And I think it was a sound plan if the world hadn't fallen apart. But once it did, uh, when you're out on a limb and we had we had gone out and, and probably, well, without a doubt, in hindsight, had had bought at least one thing too many, uh, then you can't get out, you can't get away from it. It, it was a, sp a downward spiral where we had to sell anything that wasn't nailed down. <clears throat> had to actually sell the mill and no tie, shut down the mill and glide. Uh, we almost shut down Glendale then, but turned around and sold some with the China instead and just battled it out. We literally had almost 10 years uh, that things were pretty damn rough. Finally, we get a break in 2013 and markets got pretty good. Then they fell apart again in 15, 16, and then 17 and 18 were pretty good. Uh, and we kind of try to get healthy again. Now they're bad again. So it's just a tough business. Um, um, I think we'll be fine, but boy, you really have to, well, you have to watch everything you're doing and you have to ask for concessions and um, you got to really play things tight. Well, I imagine being in a small town like Glendale where you grew up and you know, you got to be a part of the family business and you know so many people in town, everyone for that matter, that it's got to be hard when a decision is made like that, like the one you made when you have to shut down the mill there and, and know that you can move some people around like you did and, and offer them jobs elsewhere. But when you have to tell those people, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard people say, man, it's just not the same driving into town and it's never going to be. And you had to make that decision. Right. We had to sacrifice that mill uh, to try to save what we had left. And Glendale is, was the farthest south operation we had. And probably, probably for 10 years, I, I said this over and over again, I'm not going to invest another nickel in the Glendale sawmill until we see something change in federal timber sale policy. Well, every year I just kept putting money in and putting money in trying to keep the mill to a very proficient state. And then we would have a, a decent year and we go, okay, great. We're, we're all back. Uh, things are great. And then it, then it turns around and it's ugly again. Uh, and I, I could see that the only way to balance the timber supply in that region was to, for us ourselves to use less wood. So we shut the Glendale sawmill down and that, that took a hundred loads of logs uh, a day to run that mill. So all of a sudden you got a hundred loads of logs to go elsewhere. Unbeknownst to us, George Pacific, a large, very large, but privately owned company, uh, shut down their mill in Coos Bay, Oregon for the same reason. And they were a hundred load a day operation. Uh, producing 250 million board feet, and we were producing 250 board, million board feet, all narrow dimension. So the price of logs drops, and the price of dimension lumber goes up. Well, that's great, except we don't make dimension lumber anymore. We make just studs. Uh, so um, I knew it was going to happen, uh, but it's, you make your calculation, you make your decision. I know people thought, well, he's just shutting it down for three or four months, maybe going to try to get a wage concession fire it back up again. I said, no, we're not this. There's no future here. So we, we had to shut it down. And, and I was fortunate enough to find a buyer, uh, not necessarily what 
I would have hoped for, for, for the community that I grew up in and raised my family in, but we sold it to a, to a hemp processor. What's it like for you personally, not the businessman, but personally seeing the changes in that small community that have happened? Well, the, the problems for small communities, not just Glendale, but across the country are profound. Um, Glendale has been in decline for a while. Um, you grew up there, uh, uh, you know, and it was, it was pretty damn nice place to live. I grew up there. I raised my family there. Um, but when it, it just was declining for lots of reasons, it certainly wasn't employment. The number of, you know, we had 500 jobs in Glendale, Oregon, of 400, excuse me, 400 jobs in Glendale, Oregon of a town of 800. I mean, if you wanted to live in Glendale and work at one of our mills, you could have done it. And make a decent living. And make a decent living. But the reality was the people that lived there didn't want to work in the mill. Um, and it's just, it's sad. There's a lot of um, habitually unemployed people that live there. There's, there's all kinds of drug problems. Um, it's just hard. It's, it's people don't want to live there. And frankly, that started, if you really look at history, it started back when I was in the fifth grade. That's when the freeway was completed. So the last stretch of I-5 was between uh, Hugo, Oregon, and Canyonville. When I was in the fifth grade, they finished that stretch over a two-year period, and Glendale blew up in terms of number of people because that became the base for all the construction workers. My class went from you know, 30 people to 70 people, uh, but it lasted for only two years. And then we get all done, and instead of being 40 minutes to drive to Grants Pass, it's 25 minutes to drive to Grants Pass. So slowly... But, but with pace, people started spending their money in places like Grants Pass and Roseburg and Canyonville that used to be in Glendale. If you really look back, Glendale had, in, inside the city limits, had three grocery stores, 12 churches, two bars. Two pizza parlors. Two pizza parlors they had. At one time, they had a, a, a skating rink, an 88-cent store. So, I mean, we had everything there. A, a shoe store. Uh, we, we had Al Moore's Shoes. When I was a kid, you'd go in there and he would, you'd buy a pair of, uh, I'm dating myself, but you'd buy, buy a pair of Beetle boots and then you'd, you'd get Al for a couple bucks and put a couple more inches on it. So you could be a little taller and look more like the Beatles. But we had all that and we were self-contained. Uh, when I was a kid, we'd, I'd get my bike. We lived two miles out of town and I'd take off on a Saturday morning. I'm gone all day. And my parents weren't worried for, for a second. Uh, you wouldn't do that today. You probably mm-hmm. wouldn't do that in Grants Pass either. Uh, but certainly these rural communities are suffering. And it's, it's sad to see. I told myself when I sold the mill, well, two things. I said, we're not going to keep our corporate office there. I'm not going to save that little slice and spend the rest of my career looking across the street at what used to be my mill. I don't know how you could. I couldn't have. So we made a decision. We're, we're, we're leaving. We moved our, uh, what we needed for administration over to the plywood mill. And we relocated our corporate office to Roseburg, which is centrally located for our three operations. So it made perfect sense, but it was a bittersweet thing. To, uh, I told myself I'm not even going to drive by there. I'm going to go in the old highway. But curiosity keeps grabbing me, and I drive by there a couple times a week as I go to visit that mill. And I, and I hope these guys are successful because uh, they are going to provide some employment. Um, but it is kind of sad to see what was a, a really vibrant mill operation uh, doing something different. Yeah, especially when, as you mentioned earlier, you had the capabilities to be able to produce a lot of wood out of that, you know. 
and all you needed was the logs to know that it could be a successful business, but you just couldn't get the materials you needed. With with uh, <clears throat> with logs being seventy five percent of the total cost of of lumber or plywood produced, um, and when logs are in short supply, as soon as the product market heats up, everybody, ourselves included, they want to run a few extra hours. You got a good margin. Let's run more hours. So you put on some extra shifts. You put on some overtime. You use more logs. You drive up the price of logs. So while your product price goes up, your logs follow. And then inevitably, the product market tips over and starts to go down and logs stay up. It takes a long time to move the log market back down again because the private land seller, they get pretty used to those high numbers. And a lot of folks, um, they're pretty small. You know, they've got... 200 acres or 500 acres or 1,000 acres, and they can produce 50,000, 100,000 feet every year, but they don't have to. They, they, they are, they're trying to manage their lands on a sustainable basis, but it doesn't matter if they harvest those trees in 2019 or 2020 or 2021, or frankly, they've got a, probably a 10-year window before they start losing uh, efficiency. Um, if you wait too long and your trees get too big, and some of these mills can't even process them anymore. But if they don't, but if the individual doesn't need the cash flow, they can wait us out. So that's what kind of happens uh, as well. I don't blame them. That's exactly what I would do. In a lot of cases, you got a, a person that owns 40 acres that they've had for 50 years, and they're in their 60s. They're going to harvest one time, and that's that's their nest egg. They've been they've been counting on it for their entire life. They're going to replant it, and they're probably going to give it to their kids or grandkids, and they're going to harvest it again in 40 years. But somebody, they're, they're going to cash in, and they don't care whether they harvest it one year or the next. So they're, they're going to try to capitalize on the highest market they think they can get. I wanted to ask you about what it was like when you guys got hit by the eco-terrorists and they burned your office down in Glendale. Well, that was a, an amazing day. Um, so first of all, I was in San Diego. It was Christmas vacation. I was back at the airport. My, uh, Chris was with me. Uh, you were there and they were clear across the, you guys were clear across the, the terminal from us. I could see you. My phone rings and it's my mother. And she says, Hey, they had a fire in your office last night. And my first reaction was, God damn it. They left the coffee pot on. And finally by Sunday or Monday, I guess it was, we got a fire. And I'm thinking, all right, you know, started the fire in the kitchen. It's probably smoked the place up. It's not that big a deal. I get a call and like 15 minutes later and it's Chuck word who was, uh, one of our executives, and he said that was no accident. Um, it was it was well designed. Uh, Earth Liberation Front, for some reason, targeted us. Uh, I know the reason. They they literally one of their uh, ringleaders was in Eugene and saw a whole bunch of our lumber go by on a train car, and decided, yep, there's a target. So they spent whatever time it took to to case the operation out. I think they actually got in our office probably came in under the false pretenses of applying for a job, maybe had a kid with them and said, hey, can we use your bathroom? And sure, <clears throat> sent them down the hallway and they get a good idea of what's going on. They came back and they, <clears throat> they set firebombs on both sides of the building, right in the middle. Uh, they took five gallons of diesel and floated a gallon of gasoline in a separate container on the five gallons of diesel. You start to gas and whoosh, and it blows up and it's, it literally pushes all that diesel straight up into the air. And they did it under uh, areas where, uh, where, where there were roof fence and their, and their 
their plan is to get that fire into the roof, into the attic space, race along the attic, and completely consume the building before anybody even knows what's going on. That building was pretty new. Uh, we had built it in 93, and the fire was in 2001, January 2nd of 2001. And it was constructed and had fire breaks in the attic, so the, the, the fire was pretty well contained. And uh, hats off to the Glendale Rural Fire Department. They responded quickly, and yeah, they're, you know, they're, they're amateurs, but they're well-trained amateurs. They, they are, by and large, an extremely dedicated bunch of individuals, and they got that fire out. And, and the facts are, we didn't lose a thing. Um, here we are, uh, places burned where it's not usable, uh, I get back the next day as quick as I could. But, but the very day of the fire, the salespeople sat in their cars in the parking lot and sold product. And we had a, a little uh, auxiliary building that they instantly turned into the, the main office. We went out and rented another auxiliary building. The sawmill ran that day, even though the, the office across the street had burned that night. We never missed a beat. And we, the mantra was, we're not going to let these guys get to us. And here we have a fire in our main office, the corporate office for the whole company, on the 2nd of January, we got bills to pay on the 10th, and that's, it's 10th and 25th. That's how this industry works. You pay your bills and you pay your employees on the 10th and 25th. We paid our bills, we paid our employees, uh, and I couldn't have been more proud of how our people stood up and got it done. And the community was rallying behind us as well. I mean, it was, uh, as, as difficult as it was, it was rewarding in the response that we got from people yeah and at that time that organization was just tearing stuff up all over the place they were a relatively small organization a dozen people but they they burned a couple of forest service places they burned another forest products company office in medford ski resort in Vail, colorado a huge co apartment complex in uh, uh in san diego um the joe romania car lot and that's the, right uh a meat processing plant um they just they were they were crazy. Well, and then after September 11th, they kind of put the hammer down. I mean, in your eyes, is that what happened? I mean, it seems to me that that they kind of got more serious about the whole terrorist situation, and and they kind of seemed to just kind of fizzle out. Well, they actually caught, um, I think, all but one person in this whole Earth Liberation Front, and one of their members was a heroin addict, and they they had heard that he was part of it, and they zeroed in on him, and they arrested him for, for heroin possession and usage, and they got him to turn against everybody for fear of him going to prison. He's the only one who didn't go to prison. Oh, really? Uh, and uh, he wore a wire and went to, to everybody in the organization and managed to rat him out, and they, they had a huge sweep, I can't remember what year it was, and arrested initially nine people, and then it took a little more time to, to get, I think they got a total of 11. And all of them, all of them cooperated with the exception of the, the major uh, ringleader. He spent nine years in prison. Um, the rest of them spent uh, 51 months, which is still a long time. Enough uh, to hopefully straighten them out you, to where they hope. stop doing that. Um, there was a movie produced about that. Uh, it's called uh, if, a, if a Tree Falls. And it was a documentary. Um, I resisted for a long time. They contacted me, wanted to do this movie about that whole incident. And I resisted, and finally we agreed to do it. Um, the reason that the individual who was from New York City wanted to do it was 
the ringleader, just Daniel McGowan, was working with this guy's wife in a woman's crisis center. So they had abandoned their, their bad ways, so to speak. But <clears throat> he, of course, had got arrested. They knew all about it, and they were, they were intimately aware of some of the details of the process. And they came to us and said, hey, we'll, do, we'll tell a fair story, but we've got to have you involved, or it'll be really one-sided. And I finally agreed to do it, and it was interesting. And, and they did a pretty good job. Uh, you can still get it uh, on Netflix or so I can go YouTube. in the house tonight and watch it if I want to on I think, Netflix. I'm, I'm sure it might take a little effort, but you could find it somewhere. And what's it called again? If, if a tree falls. Okay. And it's a documentary. Um, it actually was nominated for some Academy Awards. No, it wasn't me for Best Actor, but uh, so you actually got to play you in the movie. I was in it. It, it, it once again, it wasn't a, a drama. It was a documentary. So there was there was really interviews. They want to know what. Much like you're saying, what 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 happened? What was I thinking about? And they interviewed all these guys, other guys too, including Daniel McGowan. Um, so the movie's produced and it comes out. Uh, I can't remember the producer's name right now, but uh, my wife says, "Let's go watch it," because they did the world premiere in Ashland, Oregon, and I resisted. And then finally, says, "Oh, all right." She says, "Nobody will see you. Don't worry about it." I go down there. I got my sunglasses on, got a hat pulled down, uh, because Ashland's a pretty liberal place. And just I, a little bit. I, I get about 20 feet from the box office, and it, this guy's name is Marshall something. And, and uh, he walks out, and he goes, hey, Steve. And it's like, oh, I've been outed. <laughs> and uh, he comes and talks to me, and then, of course, the crowd knows who I am at this point in time, or a lot of them did. I go in. I'm with my, my stepson and his wife and my wife, and the girls decided to use the restroom first. So we go sit down in the audience and we leave two seats open in between us. So I got my arm in the back of my seat. I'm talking to, to Matt. And I look back two rows back and here is one of the perpetrators who had been the lookout on our fire. And I had testified in her, at her sentencing in federal court. Well, we lock eyes and she was more terrified of being that close to me than I was. Uh, and she got up and moved and they went down in front of us. So we're sitting there and the movie starts and, and they kind of go through a roll call of the individuals. And when her name came up and they showed a picture of her on the film, the audience starts booing her. Her. Do they know that she's in the audience, do oh, you think? Oh, I'm sure they do. Absolutely okay. do. This okay. is a small town still. Uh, they, knew, they knew she was in there and, and they're booing her. And I'm sitting there going, if they're booing her, what are they thinking about me? So this Marshall, Marshall Curry was his name. He wanted me to come up afterwards and do a Q&A. And I'm going, no way. <laughs> I, I, I didn't wait for the curtain to come down. I was getting the heck out of that building. Uh, I didn't think it was a wise move on my part, or, or certainly was nothing to be gained by getting up in front of a bunch of hostile people in Ashland. So how did they respond when you were on screen? Did they respond at all? They didn't or? do anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were, they were more upset with her because she had cooperated with the government. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And no, they weren't booing her for what she had done. Wow. They were booing her for cooperating with the government. Well, that puts a whole different spin on it. Yeah. That's crazy. Let's go a different direction. Sure. Did you ever think that you would meet a president? Certainly not in my early years. Um, the president you're referring to uh, is George W. Bush. And I actually met him when he was governor of Texas. And, you know, full disclosure, it was a fundraising event. Uh, there was a bunch of us in the industry that came out early and endorsed him and supported him financially in, in his run for the uh, nomination. 
and then we we supported him even more in his run for the presidency. Um, he was he was a good guy. Uh, he made some mistakes. There's no doubt about it. There's things that, I, as I look back in hindsight, I wish he wouldn't have done, but he did. His heart was in the right place. So I met him uh, in Portland, Oregon. I met him again uh, outside of Portland at a, another fundraiser where they put me on the rope line and just to shake hands. And when he came by, and he, he, I had a message for him. I said, you know, Mr. President, uh, we sure need some help on this federal supply, federal timber supply. And he, he stops and says, I know you. And he says, I thought we had that fixed. And he reaches out and he grabs me by the hand. And he does one of those really long handshakes. and A Texas-sized handshake? Yeah. But just, I mean, just holding on to me, just holding on to my arm. Of course, I got a hold of his arm. Well, in comes the Secret Service from behind him, and they got a hold of both of his arms. Because they're, I mean, legitimately concerned that somebody in the audience is going to jerk him out into the crowd. And I'm looking, my eyes are probably as big as saucers. And I'm going, let go of me. <laughs> so I met him there. Uh, and then I, I actually met him one more time in Portland at a fundraiser, got my picture taken with him. Uh, and, uh, and then I actually saw him in the Oval Office. And it was pretty, pretty impressive. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. It, it was, it's an awe-inspiring experience. And how does that come about? Um, you, have, you have some access because you've been a contributor. And you have talked at length with his advisors and other politicians promoting your political agenda. That's how it works. They don't dream stuff up, whether they're House of Representatives, a U.S. Senator, or the President. Somebody's got to bring these things to their attention. You know, they all come in with some of their own agenda, but they really are truly representing the people, and it's the, those that make their voices heard are the ones that get represented. So we had been very active. Um, he tried to pass and did pass some legislation, and the local group that was trying to pass it, I became the president of that group, you know, a little nonprofit lobbying effort. And when the bill passed, you know, I, I got to go to the signing ceremony. Oh, I forgot. I, I saw him a fourth time actually on a timber sale. And uh, after the biscuit fire, he came out to Oregon and just outside Jacksonville, they chose a timber sale that we were logging. It was called the, uh, it was called the Squire Fire. And the timber sale was something else. We had gone in with our helicopters had done some selective logging and thinned this whole area out all the way up to this ridge. And when you looked at it, the fire went through there, but kind of crept through the, the, the underbrush and, and burned up a few piles, <clears throat> but the forest was intact. And then right over the ridge, it just was into more unmanaged forest, and it blew up again, and all you could see was white toothpicks. It burned or blew off the bark. They weren't even black. They were white. Uh, and he came up there and did a major policy address, flew into Medford in the, in the uh, Air Force One. We went up there. I think there was a group of eight of us that got to go up there. <clears throat> of course, we had to get there at 7 o'clock in the morning, and I never saw so many long rifles and steely-eyed stares in my life as all the security around him. And then he did a, a major public policy address from the landing and then went down to Medford and did an event at, uh, uh, I think, at the Armory or someplace in Medford. It was at the Expo. Probably was. Yeah. Um, we couldn't. We couldn't get there in time. We cause we couldn't leave for an hour and a half after he left. Uh, we had to sit there and cool our hills on the mountainside. Uh, but no, it, it was uh, fascinating to meet the guy. Uh, the first day I met him, and I, this is something I always said I, my grandchildren would love to hear at some point in time. I meet him at in uh, we're in a downtown hotel, and there was about twenty of us in the room, and very personable. We all have our name tags on. <clears throat> you know, mine says Steve Swanson on it. 
as he's going out, he's shaking hands and he looks at me and he says, hang in there, Steve Arino. And uh, you, you probably don't know this, but he had little nicknames for lots of people. And I was Steve Arino. And people in my family still make jokes about it. My wife still calls me Steve Arino every once in a while. That's funny. It yeah. It's interesting to look back at his time now and, and realize how, how tame he really was. And he's really got a chance to show his personality since he got out of office. And I think people realize that, you know, he's a lot different than what they thought he was probably. Right. And, you know, he was hamstrung with so many things. I mean, 9-11 for crying out loud and two major hurricanes, uh, hard things to, to overcome. Um, and you're always going to have somebody upset with how you, how you respond. Yeah. It's pretty incredible though, to think that, you know, coming from such a small town, I know that for me, I've had a chance to do some things that are pretty exciting and pretty fun to do, not meeting a president, but you just don't think of those things, or at least I didn't really growing up. And to know that you had that opportunity has to be pretty cool. It was cool. Um, uh, it was, it, there's no doubt about it. I, it's their fond memories. Talk a little bit about what it's been like. I know that we talked about how the community of Glendale has, you know, seen a lot of people move out, but just talk a little bit about what it's been like to have an impact there because you guys, I know along with you and, and, and the trucking company that's uh, part of my family has had a huge impact on the sports fields and, and just what it's been like to be able to do those things. You know, we were, I grew up there. I loved that community. I raised my family there. Um, the high school athletics was the backbone of the community. I mean, my son Chris played football. They never lost a single league game from seventh grade clear through seniors. We thought they would be <clears throat> state champions in football. They didn't quite get there, but they did make state championship, the only state championship that Glendell has ever had, and they did it in baseball that year. So a lot of really good things. We had continuity in the school district. You had Dave Grozak, you had Ed Pinkham, um, Rick Wright, Rick Wright, and just I mean, even before that, just lots and lots and lots of people that were there, not as a stepping stone, not as the last job of their career where they're trying to milk something out. The people that came there, moved there, raised their own families there, and were committed to the community. In prop, well, from 1977 when I became full time until. Uh, Chris graduated in 2000. We only had three football coaches. That's and, hard to do. And that, that's how you build successful programs. And these guys were, when you're a football coach in Glendale, Oregon, you're making a couple thousand bucks a year over and above your teaching salary. And you're putting in, you're probably getting paid five bucks an hour. If uh, even that. If even that. Yeah. And then, and then beyond that, you got people like Gary Prestiani. They're not getting paid at all to do it. And they just dedicated their off time to it sacrificing their own family time, but, but really creating a sense of community. <clears throat> and a lot of that's just, those guys are gone. Um, I'm, not, I'm not discounting what the teaching staff there do now, but they're transitory um, in large part. You don't see people that go there and go, yeah, this is gonna be my career. I'm gonna start here as a very young teacher. I'm gonna retire here. Uh, you just don't see it. And without that continuity, it's it's hard. So we still actively support the community. But it gets harder and harder um, with the school district in particular. We have um, donated materials. Uh, we, we donated the old office building up there for the longest time 
for the school district to use, and they, they just couldn't pull it together and use it. They finally gave it back to us. We donated uh, a free lease, a dollar a year lease on about 50 or 60 acres of ground up quite, uh, Windy Creek a little ways that they were going to have a forestry program. Great deal. But you get the teacher is all excited. They got some community members excited about it. They're going to kick this thing off. The teacher leaves the next year and the program falls apart. Uh, we donated um, building materials for a, a 4-H, FFA-type barn that they built. Teacher leaves, no FFA. So it gets harder and harder uh, because they just don't have that continuity. Uh, it's hard to build a program in, a, in any, well, it doesn't matter what it is, in any, any organization without continuity. Yeah. What do you see the future being in your industry? You know, um, like I said, we, we sued the BLM. We prevailed. We're in the remedy phase now. I think ultimately we have a chance at, at forcing the BLM to actually sell 500 million board feet a year. Nowhere near the 1.2 billion that the ground grows, but it'd be twice what they're selling today. Um, you know, 100 million board feet of logs will run a sawmill the size of Glendale. We employ 150 people. So if they increase the cut from 200 million to 500 million, it ought to create jobs, direct jobs, for 300 and, or 450 people. And in our industry, every primary job creates three more primary jobs, whether they're, they're loggers, they're truckers, um, you know, people that directly service the industry. And then those three jobs now create at least two more jobs that are purely service industry. They're gas station attendants, they're waitresses and cooks and um, grocery store owners, things like that. So it's a, it's a total community that all grows from primary manufacturing. You can't grow an economy on the service industry. You can't, you can't work at Burger King and buy your hamburger at McDonald's and McDonald's buys theirs from you know, Carl's Jr. and the whole thing goes around and you pass your money around. It's gotta come somewhere else. And when you look at history of the world, and I, I'll, I'm going to get a little philosophical, but when you look at where wealth is created, and I don't mean wealth as in wealthy people, I mean where real money and goods are created, they all come from the earth. There is no reason to have a personal computer if you're not doing it for some manufacturing process. And all manufacturing takes something from the earth. If you're a farmer, you're growing grass, you're feeding your cow off that grass, you're depleting the soil, you're, you're putting uh, nutrients back into the soil, but you're using the earth to, gr to grow your crop. If you're growing wheat, same thing. If you're lumber, same thing. All these are renewable businesses, renewable resources. Mining, that's a true extraction uh, industry. Uh, it's renewable in a million years. So there are some industries that leave a scar, but they're still essential industries. Um, so back to your question, I look at forestry and I think people have got to get their heads around it at some point in time that the nation is not done using wood products. It's still the primary building product. It's the most environmentally friendly building product, way more friendly to the environment to sequester carbon in a wooden building than in a brick. You're not sequestering carbon in a brick building. You've mined it and you, you put it into a building, concrete, all those things are harder to sustained steel you don't you're not regrowing steel studs you're extracting it from the earth turning it into a, a product they they have a use but they're not renewable like wood is so i think our our industry has a future 
but we've got to get some political gains in order to to get where we need to be. It's simply withdrawing and retreating. I mean, ultimately, if enough mills go out of business, you'll balance your timber supply. But without uh, an offense on the environmental community that's trying to take everything away from you, once they win one and they they wipe out half the industry, which they've already done, uh, they they come back for another bite at the apple. So you got to fight back. Uh, well, and then what? When there aren't any mills left, then what? Then you're looking at Colorado and Arizona. Those there there are no sawmills, none in Arizona, and they're trying to do a multi. I mean, hundreds of thousands of acres of forest restoration down there because they've got overgrown forests. They're fire prone. They're having their own issues with massive blazes. They can't even do the restoration work because there's no place to take the logs. Uh, Colorado, I think, has one sawmill, and they're in the same issues. They got ski resorts trying to, you know, their their trees are dying, climate change, whatever. But there's no place to even salvage that wood because there's nothing left. And you know, Oregon, Oregon in the '70s produced 25 percent of all the lumber consumed in the United States, all of it, including from third from from Canada or anyplace else, 25% from Oregon. Not Washington, not California, Oregon alone. And it was the, the biggest timber-producing state in the country. It still is the biggest timber-producing state in the country, but it's only half its size. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of room for things to get better if we have the political will and people begin to understand uh, what uh, preservationist what it, what it cost us. Um, Oregon, unfortunately, is run by Portland. Um, you know, Portland has their own ideas, and it's going to be a tough a tough deal. Um, like I said, it's hard to get anything done in, uh, with federal legislation if your two senators aren't in favor of it, and if your governor's not in favor of it. It's pretty hard to get another like-minded Republican in New York or anyplace else to vote for a, a, a a bill that would increase the harvest when the when the you know the the people in charge in this state say no we don't want it yeah I mean this is this is directly in Ron Wyden's pocket I mean it, the the forest fires that we see around here he single handedly in my opinion is is takes should take large part of the responsibility but he doesn't it's crazy to me and I don't know a lot about it I just know you know I obviously I grew up around it and, and being around the timber industry but it, it seems like the answers are all right there if people could just sit down have an uh, an open mind come to the table talk to the professionals the experts and come to some kind of conclusion it doesn't have to be all the way one way even somewhere in the middle would be helpful I would say just like I said if we could get the BLM to sell their mandated volume of $500 million is still less than half of what the forest grows every year. What do you think happens to that volume when you don't harvest it? It gets The trees get bigger. They get more dense. Uh, you're, they, they start becoming decadent. You know, Trees sequester carbon when they're growing, but there's a point when they, they, they're, they're in decline and they're emitting carbon, and then they fall over, and that all goes to, to carbon. That's, that's what people are trying to combat. Why not cut down that tree? or at least some of them, when they're still healthy, sequester that wood for a, that carbon for 100 years or more. We have homes in this country that are 200 years old. You've sequestered that carbon for a long, long, long time. Way better than letting it go up in smoke where you're burning up more volume, sometimes by a magnitude of 10 than what we're proposing to harvest. It's burning up and it's 100% carbon into the atmosphere. And do they just not understand? 
I, I think they just don't understand. And then when they, they being the public, starts to say something about it and they start talking to their elected officials, it's not a long enough attention span. And, I mean, the environmental community is very powerful. And if you're in downtown New York, you don't really care about rural Oregon. And you think of the national forest as someplace that you need to protect. You haven't ever seen it. You never will see it. Um, to, to that person, Central Park is a, is a wilderness. Um, people just don't really understand. Yeah, a lot of challenges along the way. There is. You've definitely had your share of challenges with, uh, you know, you talked about acquisition and then having to make those tough decisions to shut some of those mills down. What do you say to the kid that's in a small town or even a large town growing up and, you know, trying to figure out what they want to do and if they should maybe chase a dream or not? I mean, you had a chance to do some incredible things and, and build the company up. Like what words of encouragement or advice would you give to those you know, young adults? Well, what I like to talk to, uh, particularly in rural communities, um, and I'm, I'm happy to talk to the city dweller as well, they're just less likely to listen. Um, there's nothing wrong with working with your hands. Um, we've gone as a nation by almost, we are encouraging and almost insisting that everybody goes to college. So everybody goes to college, the cost of college skyrockets for lots of reasons uh, but there's there's more kids that want to go than what they have teachers for so teachers instead of getting paid you know they get paid twice as much as they used to get paid and they get to retire at 50 so the cost of education has just skyrocketed so people come out of college they've got 70 80 thousand dollars in debt uh, and they got a job that pays less than what they could have made working in one of my sawmills Mm -hmm. uh, or, or having gone to a two-year institution and become an electrician um, or a millwright or a plumber. There are so many of these professions out there that pay really good money, and you don't, you know, 18 months later, you don't have debt. I mean, there's a lot of these people that have degrees that they can't make any money in. You know, art history, tough, tough to make a living. But well, and like you said, though, for the longest time, we're just told you need to go to college and there's nothing wrong with getting an education, but there is a lot of throwaway degrees out there. And I was talking to my mom about this and she asked me, she said, well, what, what if your son wanted to go run cat or excavator? And I said, I'd tell him go for it because he's going to be able to make a decent living. And if he enjoys doing it, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. School wasn't for me. I didn't make it very far. Look where I ended up, you yeah. know, but carved out a decent living for myself. And I love what I do. We've got people at Glendale still people that you know john love mark um kevin causey a lot of them that came to work i remember the day john love mark came to work for us i was in my late 20s and he was you know early 20s probably 18. Um, he may have never had a job before and he and another guy and i can't remember who it was now they they walked out and when they got hired and they were high-fiving and hooping and hollering on the way out they got a job well john love mark i mean he comes he comes to work and he's a, the lowest level grunt. He's doing a pretty hard labor job, but he, but he put his mind to it and he took every opportunity along the way to advance his career within Swanson. He's worked for us for, well, since, geez, 1982. He's, you know, he's making a lot of money today. He has a very stable career. Um, you know, a journeyman electrician is gonna make between 80 and $100,000. And he never had college debt. Uh, you have to enjoy a, a, a more rural lifestyle. Uh, you're not going to live in Portland 
and drive to Glendale. You can live in Grants Pass and drive to Glendale. Uh, he chose to live in Glendale. So does Kevin. These guys are both electricians, and you know them. Mm -hmm. um, they have they own their homes, they own their cars. Their their kids went to college if they wanted to. Um, they're they're good lives. Chig Gutierrez, uh, here's a guy that came out of high school, knew he couldn't go to college, never even thought about it. One of the brightest kids in my class, never even gave it a second thought. Um, but he went to work and and he put his nose to the grindstone, became a certified grader, and he had a he's had a great life. So there's plenty of opportunity. You don't have to to leave the rural community to have not not just a a life, but a great life. Yeah, um, it's it's different. You have to like maybe you've got to do a little more hunting and fishing. Maybe you need to own a classic car. Uh, maybe you don't need to go to, to the opera. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And the older I get, the more appealing that sounds. Yeah. When you are stuck in the middle of what could be considered the rat race, I'm not talking about New York City, but where it's just nonstop and uh, you know, it actually brought a smile to my face when you were talking about those guys, because each one of those guys I know in a different way and has had some, even if it's minor impact on me, whether it's just playing pickup basketball at the gym and obviously been an integral part in the community and, uh, were very important to, to your operation. You know, Danny Foster, um, his dad before him was a, worked in the plywood mill and, you know, Danny comes to work for us and, you know, he's a, He's a controls technician. He's a licensed electrician, a journeyman electrician. Uh, you know, he, he works at all over our company. It's, it's got to be a pretty rewarding life. Um, they work. They don't have to work past their retirement age. Some of them retire early. They've, they've done well. They, they live, by and large, those people that work in our organizations are more conservative. They, you know, they, they literally save. They have a savings plan from day one. And when they get to be retirement age, they're set. Yeah, they're, they're in, they've got they've got a defined benefit pension. They've got their four hundred one k. They've got their savings, and they haven't lived an extravagant lifestyle to begin with. So they're they're doing fine. Do you have a favorite memory from all these years? Maybe one professional, maybe one personal, or if you don't want to do a personal one, that's fine. Because I'm, there's lots of peaks and lots of valleys along the way. Well, um, professionally. Um, we got a chance to, to buy a very large tract of timberland. We could never have pulled it off on our own. But um, in fact, this timberland was for sale along with a couple of what they call board plants, so, which is a parka board. And it was the old uh, Medford Corporation, or at the time then called Medco, and they announced that they were for sale. Now, Medco had been a publicly traded company uh, but very limited number of people. And uh, the guy that owned CNH Sugar swooped in and, and bought them, paid them twice what their listed value was, and bought that whole company, and then started splitting it up, shutting down mills, selling off this and that, logged the hell out of their timberlands, <clears throat> and then in the end just wanted to get out. And they, they announced to the world they're for sale, and we tried to get a prospectus, and we just weren't big enough. So a few others uh, were allowed to uh, express an a, a initial expression of interest. And one of the big companies in, in Oregon uh, got that right. And then they decided they didn't want the Timberlands. So they called me up uh, and I talked to, that, to the owner of that company. And he said, hey, do you or a group of your friends uh, want to partner with us? And you buy the Timberlands and we'll buy those board mills. And I said, yeah. And I hung up, I called 
uh, three other companies, and we put together in a, in a very few days our own company. We called it Rogue Resources, and we put together a deal where we bought 177,000 acres of timberland. It was, it was the most fun I've ever done in my life. In 1996, uh, I tell people I just didn't know what I didn't know, so nothing scared me. Uh, and we literally put this thing together. Four companies are negotiating with kind of the parent company that got us in the deal, and they in turn negotiating with the seller. So we had to put together our own operating agreements amongst ourselves. We had to figure out how we we're going to split it up, and we we find we actually bought it. It was a, an incredible process. Then we we owned it jointly, but we didn't want to stay as a company ourselves. You know, four different. We all had different philosophies on how to manage and different different needs. So we put together uh, a process to divide that land up, and we divided it up into forty eight like valued parcels. And we had that done professionally, and then we literally put together uh, the NFL draft. If you got the first pick. You, had the, you got the 48th pick, and that's you know, back and forth. And we drew, I mean, colored marbles to decide who got the first pick and so forth. And we reserved two full days to do this process. We got it done in about four hours. And the amazing thing about it was the person who got was obviously thrilled with the number one pick. Uh, the 48th uh, pick, I think everybody had the lowest value on that tract of land. But when you got it, you were still happy. I mean, it still was a good buy. So that, to me, that was, I was the president of that company. It was called Rogue Resources. And my peers in the industry looked to me to be the leader. And when we pulled that thing off, I was pretty damn proud of myself. Yeah. Asked to be cool to be in that spot where they trusted you to do something like that. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, and it, we pulled off the impossible. You, know, you, you don't see that kind of uh, cooperation amongst competitors. Uh, but I was able to pick my friends and... We, we got along well. We, we were competitors, but we were healthy competitors. And uh, it was just a very rewarding, really rewarding experience. Professionally, probably one of the worst days of my life was when I had to sell the no-tie operation. 2010, we'd, we'd had about three years of really rough times. We needed to generate some cash. <clears throat> that was, unfortunately, you have to sell some of your best assets when you're trying to sell something in a, in a down cycle. So I had to sell it. And I had to go to my mother. My, my dad had passed away, but my mother living here in Grants Pass. I'd say, Mom, had to sell the no-tie mill. And she just kind of looks at me, nods her head, and says, yeah, I kind of thought you were getting a little too big for your britches. Wow. So I walked away from there going, this is going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> the feisty redhead. And, and, and she was right. Uh, you know, as you look back on it, I got a little too big for my britches. You, you, you're kind of like Mikey. Uh, Mikey will buy anything. I just felt like we were good enough at taking these old mills, retooling them and making them successful that we could buy anything. And we probably could have if the economics uh, around us would have given us a couple more years to get through it. But it's, it's life. Yeah. And you're not successful without taking some risks. And we all have failures along, along the way. Hopefully less of those than the uh, successes. Right. But You know, I still started off with a company that had 90 employees. I grew it to 1,270 yeah, we've had to retreat. Uh, you know, we have 750 or so. Uh, we still have our small aviation division, which is a pretty exciting part of our business. Uh, we have two heavy lift helicopters, and we we have literally worked in a lot of places around the world with that. We've we've uh, we've logged in New Zealand. We fought fire in 
Australia. We did a hydro project in Taiwan. We did some oil and gas exploration in Venezuela. Uh, we've been all over the 11 Western states. We've, we've, you'd find this hard to believe. There's a little corner of Kansas that has timberlands. We fought fire there. We fought fire in Georgia and Florida. And probably one of the things I'm most proud of is um, in the peak of the uh, Afghanistan war, um, we were losing thousands of individuals either killed or maimed by roadside bombs. So the Marine Corps wanted a way to transport materials from the main bases, like Bastion and Leatherneck, I mean big bases, out to what they call forward operating bases, FOBs. And they'd be 70, 80 miles out. Uh, and they're literally small encampments uh, where they build them overnight and you've got Marines out there. Maybe there's only a dozen, but they need to be resupplied. So Lockheed Martin worked with the, with the Command Aerospace the, who makes the aircraft that we fly. Uh, and they chose us as uh, Lockheed Martin's partner to, to actually help develop the program and then to service those aircraft uh, in Afghanistan. So we had between five and seven people in Afghanistan for seven years. Yes, it was a profitable thing for us, but we were credited, the program was credited with saving lots and lots and lots of lives. We flew over four million pounds. Uh, every mission was at night. No lights, nobody in the aircraft. No reason to have lights. We'd maintain the aircraft. We would take it off with joysticks. Literally joysticks, the exact same thing that you had in your Xbox. To and fly I, the helicopter. To fly the helicopter up to 1,000 feet. Then it took over with a very sophisticated guidance system, flew it 50, 60, 70 miles out to the Ford operating base, set down the, the, the load, which weighed exactly 3,400 pounds, and then they'd fly back, and they'd fly two and three missions a night. And we were credited with saving an entire platoon that was pinned down uh, by uh, the Taliban, and we flew two missions into that platoon, and they fought their way out with no casualties. Those are things that just melt your heart makes even I mean tonight, my whole body has the chills just listening it, it makes hair stand up in the back of my neck even now wow um, and we are the world leader in unmanned KMAX which is still the platform that they're pushing so Command Aerospace has now developed and is beginning to market a commercial package uh, for unmanned aircraft and we, we're top of the list to, to pick up two of those which will be a groundbreaking just a It'll change, it'll change the world in terms of how you fight wildfires. So now it's all line of sight. You got a pilot. If he can't see it, he can't fight it. If it's a, you know, you get, you know, smoke that's a thousand feet up in the air, you can't fight the fire. You kind of know where it is, but you can't get in there because you, you just can't risk lives. Uh, if you have unmanned, you're going to be flying it with infrared uh, GPS type stuff. You'll be able to fly at night. We fly in, in smoke, um, and you won't be risking anybody's life. So we think that's going to be a game changer for us on the aviation side. Um, it's a sideline business for us. It's not our core business, but it's one that I've been really excited about. We, we started that in 1996. Uh, we started it because we wanted to, to buy federal timber sales that all had some component of helicopter logging. We couldn't get anybody to give us a bid. Um, we were quite capable of going out and estimating the value of the timber and putting together a bid on what that thing's worth delivered to my mill. But the logging cost on a helicopter sale was two-thirds of the total cost. If you can't control, two, don't know what you're doing with two-thirds of the cost, 
you get in trouble real quick. Yeah. Once again, here I am, 1996, still a pretty young guy. I didn't know what I didn't know. So, well, screw it. Let's go buy a helicopter. And we, we did. We, we bought several. We bought, uh, we've had as many as six, and we've kind of settled in on two as, as being uh, uh, where we need to be. And we have over 50,000 flight hours on KMAX, and that's more than the rest of the fleet worldwide. So we are the, we are the world's leader in flying a KMAX, which was why we were picked uh, by Lockheed Martin and then eventually the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps is still working on developing that for future use. They, they have two aircraft that we actually decommissioned for them and then put them back together again just recently and shipped them out to uh, the East Coast for further development. When they went to Congress and asked for funding, uh, their funding request literally listed Swanson Group Aviation in the funding request. That's how, just, that's how well thought of we are uh, by the Marine Corps. It, it makes me proud. It just goes to show you that anything can happen from anywhere That's right. with anyone. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, I could keep listening for hours, but uh, I told you I'd keep you for about an hour, and we're an hour and a half. Does it feel like it's been that long? Nope. What's it like? I'm going to ask you one more question. What's it like to have your son in the company knowing that there's a generation behind you when you decide to finally hang it up? It's without that. Without a generational transfer, there'd be no reason to be in business. And I'd love the employees that work for me, but I wouldn't run this thing, uh, you know, until I'm 80, uh, unless I had somebody behind me. Um, you know, Chris. I mean, he he's salt of the earth uh, individual. Um, as a young, very young kid, he had shown an interest in the company. Uh, he would go down there with me on Saturdays. I mean, my routine early on was every Saturday he went to the mill. Um, went down to the post office, got the mail, opened up the checks, put them in the mail, and mailed them to the bank because you, you picked up a couple extra days of, of interest on that money. I mean, things were have always been tight in this business. You had to run, run a really tight ship. But he'd show up with me. We'd go down there. We'd open the mail. We'd walk around the mill, check on a few projects, go down to the village inn, have biscuits and gravy, home by 11. So he was always interested uh, all the way up through high school. There was one year um, right out of you know, when he went to, to San Diego for the summer where he was making noises and wanting to do something different. But it was a, a passing thought. Uh, he went to college, and uh, I tried to talk him into going to Oregon State and getting a degree in some kind of forestry. No, he didn't want to do that. So then he, as a junior, he says, maybe I'll go to Oregon State now and go to forestry, which means starting over. I go, nope. <laughs> if you're going <laughs> to do that, you're welcome to do that, but you can be on your own, buddy. Yeah. So he got out of college in uh, 2005, and came to work for us, and he's been in every single aspect of the business. He's been a, a stud salesman. He ran the finish end in a mill. He ran the entire mill at Glendale. Um, he, he became the the uh, vice president of sales and marketing. Now he's he's vice president of uh, manufacturing, and still has his thumb on the sales. And more recently, has taken over even the HR function. So he's grown up in a business. He's 38 years old. He's quite capable of taking over. If I dropped dead uh, tomorrow, he'd struggle, but he'd be fine. Um, I know I can still add value, so I intend to work for a while longer. Uh, I'm 66, but I still feel good, and there's no reason for me to quit. I, I will quit the day I can't add value. Um, but I hope that, um, frankly, I hope that I live long enough and can stay involved long enough that I see my grandson and I see Brody who's nine years old. I only need to, 
I only need to be involved for 11 more years, and he can make, he can make a contribution at 20 years old. Um, I hope he gets some kind of a degree in business so that he understands more about it. But he shows a real interest in, in, in the mill. So maybe, we'll, maybe we'll, we'll fight all the odds and we'll be able to keep this as a family-owned business for, for four or five generations. It, that's a tough, a tough deal for any company. Yeah, not many can say that in no, any industry for any company. Right, it's hard. And if it starts with the leaders. Uh, my, my uncle and my dad, they wanted the company to survive. They brought us in young and trained us and, and you know, made it possible for us to, to be owners. I'm doing the same thing. Um, I've never thought of myself as a, as a, I own the company. I'm just a steward of my shares. I'm, I'm nurturing my son and nurturing the company. I want him to own the same amount that I own, and I want him to pass it on to his kids. Yeah, um, and that's that's a sign of success. Well, there you go. I think that summed it up perfectly. Unless yeah. there's anything else you want to add before I let you go, that'd be it. Well, thank you so much for coming over. I haven't had a chance to see you for a while. This has been great. Uh, I had a great time sitting here. Just. I mean, you did a fantastic job. I just got to sit here and listen, which makes it easy on me, but a lot of good stuff in there and uh, very encouraging. You know, there's, there's a lot out there. If you decide to, you know, open your mind to it and put in the hard work, it just goes to show you, you can do just about anything. Absolutely. This has been a pleasure. There you go. It's episode 19, the Garage Talk podcast that has just about, uh, well, absolutely nothing to do with the garage other than the fact that we're in the garage, Uh, but it is the Garage Talk podcast, and you can find it just about anywhere. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Android, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and garagetalkpodcast.com. If you haven't had a chance, please subscribe and rate the podcast so that you can help other people find it, and don't forget to share it with your friends. Again, the Garage Talk Podcast, episode 19 with Steve Swanson, the president and CEO of Swanson Group. Steve, thanks again for coming in. Thank you, Jason.